Formula One heads to the circuit Paul Ricard this weekend as the teams and drivers prepare for the French Grand Prix. Mercedes looks to continue its momentum on track that favors the W13. Can Charles Leclerc close the gap on Max Verstappen? And can Mick Schumacher score points for the third race in a row? All this and more on Unlapped. Sometimes I am rooting for uh, all hell to break loose. One of them will complain and then the other one will complain even more. And then we get to a point where there's just an absolutely outrageous quote somewhere down the line. If the FIA gets what it wants, there's a danger that some cars will have to, or some teams will have to change the way they set up their cars or have to sacrifice a bit of performance. I'm glad you went to Lawrence for that absolute downer of a, of a yeah. point. <laughs> Welcome to the Unlapped ESPN F1 show. I am Katie George. He's Nate Saunders, and that's Lawrence Edmondson. And if you're joining us, then we're all here getting ready for an exciting weekend of racing. I believe we're in uncharted territories in England right now, guys. Is that is that true? Are you both surviving the heat? Are you staying hydrated, I hope? Just about surviving. It feels like we're back on the grid in Miami. Remember how hot that day was? And then added some more heat on. And in the UK, we're just not very good at dealing with heat anyway. So, yeah, but we're surviving. Well, I am. I can't speak for Lawrence, but it looks like he's surviving pretty well. I'm just about surviving. I'm a bit worried about going to France, though. I leave for France tomorrow, and it's going to be uh, above 40 degrees pretty much every day of the weekend. And, yeah, as a British person, I just can't really cope with that. Um, But, yeah, fingers crossed it all kind of goes to plan, and we don't have some kind of heat-induced problems with the cars as well. Well, your plants behind you look like they're thriving uh, from the sunlight, so that's good. Make sure you both pack plenty of water and stay hydrated because it's sure to be a hot weekend, which could make for fun racing. Before we get started, remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave a comment, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. If you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, and it's time for us to get into it. Uh, Before we start and we dive into the French Grand Prix, I know as race weekend becomes closer and closer, we see more headlines, more newsworthy stories. Is there anything that you guys have um, been interested in or garnered your attention over the last couple of days? Well, there's, um, there's a few quotes going around from Toto Wolf suggesting that Red Bull and Ferrari are making F1 boring now because they're too far ahead. Um, now, that's obviously slightly controversial because for years we've had Mercedes dominating the sport. That quote is also quite a long way out of context when you see it in the tweets and the headlines that go around. Uh, that was said at a press conference immediately after the sprint race. And what Toto was trying to say was, look, the sprint race wasn't that exciting And he basically just detailed what happened. Max disappeared into the distance. The Ferraris had a bit of a scrap for a couple of laps. And then it all died down. And a lot of cars got stuck behind each other, unable to overtake each other because they were all benefiting from what we call DRS, drag reduction system, which is the overtaking aid. And they were all getting it. So no one was passing. So he was actually criticizing the idea of sprint races, which remain a controversial topic in F1. We've got three this year. We're expecting to have six next year. Um, and it's probably going to be the future of F1, but still not everyone's on board of it. But it's the very nature of these things. We're in the middle of the season, the championship, uh, it, the kind of thread of the championship, the narrative gets a little bit lost at this time of year. So every single little quote and every single little story gets picked up on and magnified. But that one, uh, yeah, it's one that uh, was, we were alerted to, but isn't actually as big a story as, as as it might have looked as a quote by itself. We're just debunking great quotes off the bat here. I, I find that quite funny. Um, mine's similar. I mean, one that stood out, it's a week old now, so forgive me, anybody listening who's seen this, but obviously last week we saw Daniel Ricciardo release a statement um, about his future at McLaren, and it was effectively him saying, um, well, I'm, I've got a contract, I'm staying with the team, which isn't usually newsworthy, but the fact that he 
felt the need to put that out suggests that he does feel like it's necessary at this point. Um, and that to me is kind of, we always get to this point in the season and it's what we call the silly season. It's kind of driver market stuff. Everybody's trying to work out who's going to go where. And this year, it doesn't seem like there's going to be that much movement around because some people are locked into their seats. And Ricardo's one, I think, is garnering a lot of interest. There's rumors about him, you know, being being either sacked by McLaren or him retiring. Um, I'm pretty sure. I mean, the people I've spoken to who are close to Ricardo say that he's got no intention of retiring at all. And that's kind of what the statement was saying. But it was also very interesting the way he worded that that tweet that he put out actually sorry i think it was an instagram story that he put out um but i think he's basically saying to mclaren he's like look i'm not going to walk away from this contract that i've got and i get the feeling that mclaren would feel like it would make their lives a lot easier if he did do that because they could move on from him it's clear his form isn't where it needs to be right now which is so annoying because I'm, I'm sure you know i know we all love Danny ricardo think he's a great driver great talent it'd be a shame if he's not on the grid but for McLaren, you can see why they'd be upset with him. But Ricardo was just basically reminding McLaren and reminding Zach Brown, I have a contract. You signed it. There's no exit clauses. I'm not leaving until the end of next year. It reminded me a little bit of the Wolf of Wall Street with DiCaprio saying, I'm not staying. But I don't know whether Zach Brown would have responded in the same way as the people did on the on the, on the the trading floor in that scene. Um, but that's kind of what it was about. And um, hopefully for Ricardo, something like that, that kind of defiant statement can kind of kick on a bit of a turnaround in form. I understand he's he's upped his simulator time for McLaren. He went to the McLaren Technology Center last week and he actually gave a longer version of that speech to the McLaren team that were there. And apparently I've heard from a few people that were there. He got quite choked up about it. So I think that he is genuine about wanting to continue. He obviously is the first to admit that he's struggling. Um, so yeah, it would be great for, it'd just be a great story for F1 if we can get him and Norris performing very well for that McLaren and kind of dragging that team forward. Um, Cause at the moment it's basically one of F1's most popular drivers just being dragged through the mud a little bit, which is uh, which isn't great to see. You find yourself rooting for him every single weekend and he just can't seem to produce the results that McLaren obviously needs. He needs, and you want as a fan of him, can you guys remember a time or, or a driver in particular that had such a great personality that you absolutely loved watching, but just, Every single weekend, you felt a little bit let down for him and for yourself as a fan. Well, I remember when I was younger, I was, this is maybe not, most people were a big fan of him, but I was a big fan of Jacques Villeneuve. And uh, he won the championship in 1997. And then uh, Williams had a big downtrend in form. And then in 1999, he went to a new team called BAR and he was racing for them. And I was a big fan of him. And, you know, he was world champion. He won the Indy 500. He had so much going for him, but he just couldn't get it together. And then teammate after teammate came through, went up against Jensen Button, for example, and he just looked very, very ordinary. And I always felt like this guy, you know, surely he can be better. But in the end, that basically was the end of his career. It kind of petered out. He went to Sauber. He did one race at Renault. And then, you know, that was it for Jacques Villeneuve in F1. So, yeah, similar kind of uh, trajectory in that he looked super good in 97. And then it just tailed off as he went to different teams and just couldn't quite compete with new teammates coming in. I think Ricardo needs to try out some of those baggy overalls. Villeneuve always wore these massively baggy overalls all the time. We walk around. Maybe that was part of his issue. I don't know. Um, but Villeneuve's a great shout. I wouldn't have thought Villeneuve. I'm trying to think. So Lawrence's answer saved me there because I can't think of one other than Ricardo off the top of my head. Well, I don't think he would be above baggy overalls because we've seen him wear some pretty outrageous things, uh, in particular on the GQ uh, cover a couple of years ago. All right, let's dive into the French Grand Prix preview here. Can we discuss what is probably the greatest trophy in sports? For those who haven't seen it, Lawrence, can you at least just describe the trophy for the French Grand Prix and then we can discuss it further? 
Um, okay, so yeah, it is unique in Formula One in that it is a gorilla with his hands above his head. Sometimes he's holding a Pirelli tire. I think that was when Pirelli was sponsoring the event. Sometimes he's holding a barrel, but he's um, the creation of an artist uh, from the south of France, I think from Saint Tropez, called Richard Olinsky. And uh, people pay ridiculous amounts of money for these sculptures of gorillas, and they pop up in weird places as well. I live in London, in Islington, and around the corner from me, there's this giant red one outside, I think, a Hilton hotel. So, yeah, it's um, you may recognise it from other places, but, yeah, it's this great. I think it's kind of cool. Lots of people hate on it because it looks weird and it's maybe not exactly what you expect from a racing trophy. But I think it's cool. It's nice to have a bit of variation uh, among the trophies that they get given. Nate, what do the drivers think of it? I think they like it. I think I'm trying to remember the first year that we went back to pour a card, but I think Lewis won. And I remember there's a great picture of him kind of looking at the trophy and kind of laughing. And he always made a big point when he won the British Grand Prix that he used to hate getting the kind of the sponsors trophy instead of the the famous big kind of gold kind of claret jug that they get. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he liked it. I mean, some of them have said it's weird, but it's different. I agree with Lawrence. Like, I like that it it kind of stands out as being different. And this could just be another race in the middle of the season, but it's got that kind of that weird yeah, that weird bit to it. And there's also a giant gorilla. I'm not sure if it's still there, but the same sculpture sat between the pit lane and the main straight. So I remember the first time I went to Paul Ricard, I'd never, I'd, I'd seen pictures of it from like testing events and stuff that you pull in and you go into the pit lane and, and it was like, what on earth is this? And as we watch more of the weekend, we realized this is actually like a major theme of this race now. So um, it's very weird. I think they all kind of like it. I'm not sure how many of them would happily put it on their trophy cabinet. I don't know. Like, I, I, I think if you've won a lot of races, you'd happily put that there, but that's the only one you've got like, people people would be like uh okay are you sure that's an f1 trophy but um the, no it looks pretty cool the cool thing is is uh, i went to red bull quite recently and you go in and their reception naturally they put all the trophies on display in these huge glass floor to ceiling wow. cabinets and you look around and you kind of you don't know where to look you know you're trying to figure out which one's which that one stands out immediately everyone can point at that and say oh i recognize mm. that one that's from the french grand prix so I, I think it's kind of cool like that. And yeah, they, they do have them in the pit lane, this giant one. They also have a giant bear. And I think, I can't remember That's what right, the other yeah. animal is. There's maybe a, a kind of panda as well. But anyway, keep a lookout like during the practice sessions, during qualifying, during the race, because you might just see one in like the corner of a camera shot of a pit stop. Which always makes me laugh because it's like clearly all animals we all associate with France, right? <laughs> as, as they're doing the race. So that's what always made me chuckle about that. Uh, let's take a look at uh, where things stand after the first 11 races of the season. All right, here's a look at both the driver standings and the constructor standings heading into the French Grand Prix. Starting with the driver standing, Charles Leclerc got a big win in Austria, but when it comes down to the numbers, guys, he's still 38 points behind Max Verstappen. It's also worth mentioning that Ferrari struggled with tire wear in France a season ago. Nate, do you feel like Charles and Ferrari can close the gap this weekend? Maybe not necessarily this weekend, but I think that they should feel a lot better about their chances now that Charles got that win. And it does seem like a lot of points, but all it takes is one race where Verstappen doesn't finish and Charles wins. And suddenly that's a really small lead that he's got. So while we're in that kind of margin of error, I think they're in a good position. You're right about the tire issue here last year. They really struggled last year. Ferrari at this event and um but I think that as I think the key for them at these weekends is if we're losing to Max we have to make sure we're finishing second to him make sure that it's you know it, it, it it's a small gain that he's getting and keep him in that kind of that retirement window if they can move forward but um this weekend might be a stretch but um I'm, I mean for the championship's sake I hope it's not I hope that Ferrari can make a huge gain here and keep it interesting because going to the summer break is when if there's a huge gap at the front, you kind of go into the season, into the summer break a little bit deflated. We've obviously got hungry after this race, but 
you can kind of get a sense of where the championship is at that point. Lawrence, do you feel like there's still tension possibly within Ferrari's team, or do you think that they've moved past that going into France? Um, yeah, I feel, I feel like there was a bit of tension after the sprint race in Austria because there was a situation where you had the two Ferrari drivers behind Max Verstappen. Obviously, Charles Leclerc is the closest to him in the championship, so I was trying to catch up with him. But at the same time, he was facing a challenge from Carlos Sainz's teammate, who's even further back in the championship. And we saw how much Red Bull would prioritise Verstappen over Perez. We saw that in Spain. Perez was asked to move over to let Verstappen take the victory. And you feel like if Ferrari are going to close this gap in the Drivers' Championship, at least, you know, they're going to have to orchestrate it a bit. At times when Charles is struggling a little bit, that you know, they're going to maybe have to ask Carlos to support him rather than attack him. And so I, I feel like there's a little bit of unease there, not least because Charles Leclerc could have an extra, I mean, I worked it out the other day on kind of a rough estimate, about another 72 points had he not had problems with his strategy, problems with uh, reliability over recent races. And it really happened in this concentrated block of five races. So, you know, there was a time when we were three races into the season in Australia and Charles Leclerc had won two of the first three races and Max Verstappen had had two retirements and Leclerc was over 30 points ahead. And we were saying, well, you know, maybe this championship's over already. Of course it wasn't. It went back the other way. So, yeah, I I feel like um, Leclerc is just looking to his team and saying, like, look, if we're going to really challenge Max, who we know gets it right so often, is so difficult to beat at the best of times, he feels like he's going to need the full support. And I feel like there's certain races, Silverstone springs to mind, Monaco springs to mind, the strategy hasn't been there for Leclerc to maximise his performance. And I think that was what created a little bit of tension. And then when they went wheel to wheel in Austria and Max disappeared into the distance, which again was roughly what Toto Wolf was talking about in that quote, it just kind of stuck a little bit then as well. But of course, the victory on Sunday for Leclerc was a big step forward. We saw Red Bull really struggle with um, their tyres. Clearly, I think they got something wrong with the setup. They were the anomaly. It wasn't that all of a sudden Ferrari found pace. I don't think it was just all of a sudden Red Bull was off the pace. So the thing about that is that teams often learn from those mistakes. So Red Bull clearly made some kind of setup error in Austria. They will probably understand that by now and they'll be able to play that through and figure out how to not repeat it at the future races. And so I think if Ferrari feel like they got a little bit of ground back, it only converted to six points in the driver's championship. And really, you know, they're going to have to push again and make sure they're absolutely 100% perfect to beat Max at a race like French Grand Prix. Okay, so if you take all of that into consideration, strategy, performance, reliability, who does this track suit better, Nate, Ferrari or Red Bull? I'd still say Red Bull at this point. I think Lawrence is right about the anomaly uh, of last weekend. Ferrari struggled here last year. And I mean, those last two points you mentioned, uh, reliability and strategy, we know aren't really the strongest things for Ferrari right now. I think that engine issue for science is going to be something that we're talking about coming into the weekend and just going forward generally. It's not the sort of thing you want to see happen for a team that's chasing the championship. So I'd say Red Bull. Okay. Well, you look outside the top four of Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Sergio Perez, and Carlos Sainz. You have both the Mercedes drivers in fifth and sixth. George, as we know, has been Mr. Consistent year the, the entire year uh, outside of his DNF at Silverstone. But Lewis, I think we can agree, has gotten faster and faster with each week. You know, this French track is very similar to Silverstone, where Mercedes thought that they possibly could have been the second quiz, quickest on the grid uh, that weekend. So, Lawrence, is this a weekend we could finally see Lewis Hamilton get a win? Yeah, I think for a long time, Mercedes were aiming at this race as one to make a breakthrough because. In Spain, they um, 
bought a brig update, which solved a lot of their early season problems. Then they went to tracks with bumps and they struggled with different issues. Then they kind of got their head around that. And then they went to Silverstone and they felt they were going to be competitive. But they had their eyes a little bit on the French Grand Prix as one where maybe they could really take the fight to Rebel and Ferrari. I still think on the basis of what we saw at the last two races in Austria and Silverstone, sure, they made steps, but they haven't quite completely closed the gap. So it's going to require something a little bit strange to happen. But as I was talking about earlier, 40 degree heat, you know, that is really, really hot. And we've seen that the Mercedes uh, has struggled sometimes to get the tyres turned on for a single lap. So that's why we've often seen them struggle a bit in qualifying relative to race pace. But the counter side to that is that over race, they can just eat the life out of those tyres. Uh, it's a little bit easier on the tyres of car when it's set up properly, um, which they've struggled with a few times. But if they can find that setup, that sweet spot, you kind of feel that with a little bit of strategy, even if they're starting fourth, or fifth, you know, they might just be able to work their way back into the race. I think a victory against, you know, Charles and Max when they're on their top form with no problems is probably a step too far. But yeah, there's a little bit of hope there for Mercedes. I think Katie, Katie just wanted a yes there, didn't you, Katie? That was <laughs> that was a straight up yes, Lewis can win. I, I could feel that. <laughs> I didn't quite get it, um, but he said maybe if something happens, sometimes I am rooting for... Uh, all hell to break loose up front so that Lewis can uh, gain a couple of positions. Alas, I'm not always rooting for that, but just sometimes. Uh, You mentioned the heat. Obviously, weather plays a big factor in terms of strategy. Is heat just as difficult to manage as rain and switching onto those kind of tires, wets, or is heat actually easier to manage, Nate? I think it it creates a whole different set of problems. I mean, the tires... Obviously, for wet conditions, you have tires that are bespoke for those conditions. And tire tire management, I mean, it's it's half of what they talk about on the radio. And finding that sweet spot for tires, you know, they're talking about that. Effectively, they're trying to find the optimal uh, heat window for those tires. So obviously, temperatures like we're seeing at the moment in Europe don't don't really help you with that. One thing that they do struggle with, and you get this more when you get to Singapore and stuff like that. But it's easy to forget these guys also are just human beings driving in cars, and they'll sometimes get out of these cars and they're absolutely like sweltering they're they're in these giant race suits i think the french grand prix if i'm not mistaken one of the first ones was when i think it might have been kimmy went without his his drink for a little bit and was basically racing the entire way around i might have completely put that race in the in the wrong place but it's it's the sort of race basically where you don't want that to happen so i'm pretty sure that um they would rather be out in a much cooler venue but from a from a car performance point of view you talk about these cars they overheat in any kind of situations you've got brakes you've got tires you've got your engine etc so for the engineers and for the drivers it's an absolute nightmare trying to keep everything on an even keel all right so you got lando norris esteban ocon valtteri botas and fernando alonso who round out the top 10 drivers respectively but it's the alpine drivers i think i want to take a look at and as we shift our focus to the constructors championship you know it's a home race for alpine this weekend in france both drivers have been really impressive uh, throughout the entirety of this season. Okan Alonso are both coming off of a double point finish in Austria. And, and, you know, they got more points from a fifth place finish in Silverstone. So they now sit even with McLaren at 81 points in the constructors. We've chatted about how important this championship is for the teams in a previous episode. So how realistic is it, Lawrence, for Alpine to move into that fourth place spot in front of their home support this weekend? Yeah, I think that's very possible because um, we've seen us Alpine have made steps with their car, visible steps as well with upgrades, especially to the upper bodywork, kind of mimicking the Ferrari a little bit. Um, they've taken strides forward and McLaren have really struggled. And of course, at the moment, McLaren is their main rival in in in, in the championship. So 
I could really see that happening, yeah. And it really, it's a place that Alpine should be up. We shouldn't never forget that they've got their own engine supplier in Renault. That's a factory team, so it should be on the same levels as your Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes, in theory. Uh, they often struggle to get there. But um, every step is, you know, it's a little bit of progress that they need. But you're right, those two drivers are two, two of the best, you know, in the sport. I mean, certainly Fernando needs no introduction, really, two-time world champion, uh, consistently gets the best out of the car. He often claims that each race is the best race he's ever done. And we've seen Fernando do some brilliant races in the past. Whether you agree with him on that is not a matter. Uh, and then Esteban, I think, is maybe one of those slightly underrated drivers from that generation and a real fighter, a guy who kind of come from nothing. Uh, if you've watched the Netflix episodes around him, you'll see what that guy's all about and face some real difficulties in his career when he was chucked out of racing point because uh, Lawrence Stroll bought the team and put Lance Stroll in his position. And so I think now we're seeing that, you know, he's uh, he's got potential and, of course, a race winner for Alpine last year in Hungary. So the ingredients are there. It's just like getting it in the right place. And uh, while I think fourth in the, in the championship is obviously what they're aiming at the moment, I think long term, really, that team should be maybe punching a little bit higher than that. Um, but they've got to take each step at a time. And at the moment, they're making good steps. Nate, do you think that McLaren is pretty upset that this fight is as close as it is for fourth? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think at the start of the year, Lawrence and I went to their launch. I mean, you know, there was a real sense of optimism that this year they weren't going to be fighting for fourth. They were going to be up there fighting for wins and for championships. Maybe the championship, you know, wasn't something they thought of this year, but they certainly thought they'd be closer to the front than this. And I think that that's to go back to the Ricardo point. I think that's one of the things that's really frustrated them about that is if you compare his points all to Lando. Ricardo underperforming has really dragged them back into this fight with Alpine. You know, they could be well, well clear of that, or at least have a, a bigger points buffer. So yeah, I don't think that they wanted to be here either. And it does feel Alpine v McLaren right now does feel like the fight between two sleeping giants. You know, they're fighting for fourth position, which, you know, it's hard to get super excited about as a fan, but for those two teams, I think Lawrence is absolutely spot on that, that these guys want to be so much further up than this and, and kind of this season and the next season is really going to dictate how much closer up the, you know, closer up to the front they can get. So, yeah, McLaren's certainly not happy about it. I'm not sure if Alpine would be either because they always targeted this regulation change as being a time when they could really jump to the front. Um, but I think that McLaren came into the year with more expectations. So, yeah, I think that, I think, again, going back to Ricardo's situation, one of the things you're seeing there is Zach Brown is having a lot of these, these, you know, McLaren have so many shareholders who have a lot of power, you know, a lot of power and influence about how that team is run. And I think he's now having to answer them and say, well, yeah, we're not actually performing as we said we would. Um, so yeah, not not the best time for McLaren. Better than it was a few years ago. But that's, you know, that's that's hardly that's hardly saying anything. Fair enough. Well, another team we've seen kind of creep up the constructor standings over the past few weeks is Haas. Uh, Mick Schumacher had to wait 31 Grand Prix to score his first points. Uh, but now he's had back-to-back races where he's finished in the top 10. So it looks like he's finally gained his confidence um, after what was pretty rocky start, I think is fair to say to 2022. So do we expect Lawrence another good performance out of Haas and Schumacher this weekend? I think so. Um, I'm really dug into whether this track will suit Haas, but um, certainly Mick's progress over the last few races is, is really encouraging. And you know what, when we've seen Mick in junior formula, so in formula three, formula two, he had this similar pattern. He had his first season in those categories where he was really just mid-table, not looking particularly special. Then in his second season, at one point, he'd just get it all together. And all of a sudden, he'd be getting these amazing uh, results together and went on to win those championships. Now, he's not going to win the F1 championship, but he is getting to a point now where he's 
doing what he should be doing. He's scoring points in a car that's capable of doing that. Meanwhile, Kevin, I think, continues to be a very solid, like very good person for him to measure himself against. Um, the interesting thing about Haas is that they haven't really brought any upgrades. We've talked about upgrades on the Alpine, uh, to some extent the McLaren, you know, the Aston Martin, certainly all these rival teams that Haas is fighting against, and yet their car hasn't really changed a huge amount from the start of the season. Originally, they were talking about the French Grand Prix as an upgrade. I think it might have actually been pushed back a little bit now, but um, we'll have to wait and see what they've got in the car. Uh, we get to see them for the first time on the Friday. We get a little poke around, see what's new, and uh, we'll take a look and uh, kind of tweak pictures if we find uh, new parts in it. But we're hoping, we're hoping that yeah, Haas have got something over the next few races that will allow them to continue to get the results from again recently. But to your point, it's a bit uncommon not to see upgrades at this point of the season. So why haven't they brought upgrades? Is that a monetary issue? Is that just purely their their perspective on what they think is best at this point? I think fundamentally it's money. Yeah, we, we talk about these top teams mm-hmm. uh, being restricted by the budget cap. Well, Haas isn't even going to reach the budget cap, you know, unless inflationary pressures take them there, but they weren't certainly planning to reach a budget cap at the start of the year. So uh, they're operating on a smaller budget, which means they have to be much more careful about where they spend their money. They have to be very selective. Uh, But it's also a strategy as well. We've seen that with the difference between Ferrari and Red Bull this season at the front of the grid. We've seen Red Bull bring lots of upgrades, uh, small bits sometimes, and then sometimes slightly bigger bits, whereas Ferrari will sometimes go a couple of races and then bring something big it will make a difference in performance, a noticeable one, and then we'll see them flatten off a bit as Red Bull continues to creep up and then Ferrari bring the next big upgrade. So, yeah, there is strategy to it as well. And you've got to remember is that the way that Haas is working at the moment, basically the whole design office is working out of Maranello. We should say not with the Ferrari engineers because that would be breaking the regulations, but they're working uh, to a similar kind of mindset. There's um, people that have worked in the same structure at Ferrari before, uh, who are now working specifically for Haas. And so I don't think it's a surprise to see that those two teams are taking a similar approach, which is go a few races without upgrades, then bring a big one, go a few races without. The only difference being that Haas's budget means that they go a few more before each upgrade comes in. I think Mick, Nate, is a good example of just how quickly the narrative can change. I mean, it was, what, yeah. two months ago where we were seeing him wreck the car for a million dollars worth of damages, and we were having a conversation of, does Haas continue on with Mick or is it worth it? And now he's obviously producing points, 31 Grand Prix. That's how long it took for him to finally get into the points. Does that just, is that kind of the standard in terms of a young rookie coming into this sport at this level? And it just takes them that kind of time to find their way. I think so, but I think it shows you as well. uh, Haas would never say that they enjoyed last year. You know, they had a a terrible car that was way off the pace, but I think that, Schumacher effectively had a year where he was able to learn F1 in a car that no one expected him to get out of Q3, score points. And I think that had he been in this car last year as a rookie and, you know, Kevin or or whoever his teammate was, you know, in this hypothetical situation was scoring points regularly, I don't think the patience would have been there for a whole season. So I think that a lot of the time with rookies or or with drivers that get a chance in a big car, circumstances are everything and the context around the car is everything. Um, but Lawrence is right, you know, Mick's kind of famously been quite a slow learner or at least someone who's slow to maybe get up to pace. Um, and we asked him, I mean, Lawrence and I both went to his media session in Austria on Thursday and I asked him, I said, you know, we can stop asking you that question now, but when your first points are going to be, it must be a relief. 
and he kind of said, yeah, you know, it's it, he knew he could do it. He knew he had it in him. And once you tick it off, you did. He did seem a bit more relaxed about things. So um, I think he's been I think he's been fortunate in that. Um, but again, it, it shows you that sometimes patience is a good thing for a rookie. So hopefully going forward, a lot of other teams can look at him and say, well, look, if we give this guy an opportunity. Let's not immediately kind of get ready to throw, you know, to discard him from F1 because, um, yeah, I think Mick, Mick did come fairly close to at least have like the team having that discussion about him. Um, but yeah, he's, he's gone about it the right way. He's been pretty professional and he's just kind of got his head down. And, and, uh, I think that the Kevin point is, is a really good one. Um, you know, in, in Austria, Kevin basically just let Mick past him and he said, look, I knew Mick was faster on the day, didn't want to get in front. And I think if you'd had the same dynamic as Mick and Mazepin last year, Haas might have been in trouble where they, they're both kind of fighting for their careers a little bit. Um, yeah. So yeah, Mick's in a really good position now, I think, to thrive a bit more uh, and hopefully he can build on that. All right, let's hit a technical note real quick because I think this was originally supposed to be the race weekend where the FIA plan on monitoring the floor flexing. But I believe, Lawrence, that they have since pushed that back. So where are we with the FIA making sure that the car is a little bit more safe? Yeah, so this is a fairly complex, pretty dry issue, but it's increasingly becoming a political issue, which makes it interesting because the teams are bickering about it behind the scenes. So uh, just to go back to the start so we know what we're talking about, at the start of this year, because of the way the regulations allow teams to create downforce, the cars were seen bouncing up and down quite a lot. And that was essentially the underfloor aerodynamics uh, not doing their job. They were leaking, stalling. And so these cars would bounce around. The teams weren't expecting this to happen, obviously. They didn't want their cars to go bouncing up and down. But it was having a problem for the drivers because we had these onboard cameras. And anyone who watched the season so far this year, in practice sessions, qualifying sessions, you would have seen the heads of the drivers, the helmets, being violently shaken in the cockpit. And mm -hmm. that obviously led to some concern. Uh, then it got really bad in Baku. And that was slightly different. It wasn't actually so much an aerodynamic issue so much as just the track surface and how stiff these cars have to run to get that underfloor aerodynamics working. They were bouncing around. And that's where we had complaints of back problems. We saw Lewis Hamilton gingerly yeah. getting out of the car and like reaching for his back. And... And so the FIA said, well, look, you know, our responsibility, one of our responsibilities is the safety of these drivers. And they've always had a clause in the regulations that says, if we're concerned about any aspects of safety, we can change the regulations. We can tell you to do things differently. And, uh, and that's essentially what they've done. So they came up with this idea. They said, look, if your car's bouncing so much, we're going to be able to tell you to change the setup and, and do different things with it. That's pretty controversial in F1 terms. Um, I won't go into the exact reasons why, but, you know, it's very rare that the governing body will tell a team how to set up a car and like the limitations of what they can do, because really it should be on the teams to run the car safely. But of course, as teams look for performance, they got more bouncing. And so you had this nasty spiral. Anyway, so, so we got to the point where the FIA were going to bring in uh, that and they were also going to clamp down on how much the front of the floor was flexing. So there were suspicions that the fastest teams, so Red Bull and Ferrari, were flexing the front of uh, the floor more than you're allowed to under the regulations at speed to basically allow them to run extra low to uh, the surface of the track to gain that extra downforce, but without kind of incurring uh, the nasty bouncing, but also uh, by basically breaking the regulations and running too close to the ground. So this was meant to come in in the French Grand Prix. Lots of conversation about it. Ferrari saying the FIA can't change the regu regulations like this mid-season, even if it's for safety. The other teams should simply raise their ride height, Mercedes being the obvious one that was struggling with it. And so we ended up in a situation where, yeah, French Grand Prix was going to be the cutoff. Get your car sorted by then. But the pushback 
led to from Ferrari and Red Bull, especially led to that uh, deadline being pushed back to the Belgian Grand Prix, which is what we've got now. So the cars will still be running in the same way that they were at the previous races in France. But the FIA have now, and this is why this has come back on the news agenda this week, gone a step further for next year and really changed some of the regulations entirely uh, to um, around what you can do at the front of the floor to, again, try and stop this bouncing. But the teams at the front, Red Bull and Ferrari are saying, look, we've got fast cars regardless of this. Why, why are you kind of stopping what we're doing just so that teams like Mercedes aren't bouncing as much? Surely it's on them to uh, sort out. So that's where we got to. So you know what? As it turns out, French Grand Prix, not a huge amount changing. But expect to hear about this. Expect to hear a bit of moaning, a bit of bickering in the background over this because it is a, an issue and it all comes down to performance. Ultimately, if the FIA gets what it wants, there's a danger that some cars will have to, or some teams will have to change the way they set up their cars. They'll have to sacrifice a bit of performance. And of course, any team that starts to do that is going to be concerned about it. They're going to push back against it and they're going to claim that the FIA aren't really acting on safety grounds. They're trying to level up the uh, the performance among the cars, which is not really the FIA's job to do mid-season. Who do we feel like Nate will hear the most uh, complaining from? Oh, that's a really good question. I was about to say that the it, it's basically Christian Horner versus Toto Wolf part. And I don't know what part we're up to now, part 15, 16? Six, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it does seem... I always feel in F1 at the moment, if if the issue wasn't between those two teams specifically, it might be a bit less heated. There's a real, you know, there's a genuine animosity there between those two guys. Um, mm-hmm. I think Horner will be, uh, you know, it, I mean, he's he's been talking today about flexi wings and, you know, kind of downplaying the impact that will have, as Lawrence was saying, on performance of the top teams. Um, so I would, I'd probably, I'd bet Horner, but I think what, what, what they're great at doing, one of them will complain and then the other one will complain even more. And then we get to a point where there's just an absolutely outrageous quote somewhere down the line. But this weekend, I'd say Horner. Um, but yeah, that whole that whole argument is kind of what it centers around is, is this for safety? Is it for performance? And you see time and time again in Formula One that the team will just, comp- any team will just completely center around the argument that suits their team. And it kind of is why you don't want Formula One teams having a, like, you know, the, the complete say in how the sport is run, because ultimately the teams will do it what's in their vested interest at that moment to do. All right, well, let's shift our focus uh, to the circuit. The the circuit Paul Ricard has 15 corners stretching over 3.6 miles. That is 5.8 kilometers for those of you who are working on your conversions like me. And the drivers will hit 53 laps. So, Nate Lawrence, it sounds like this track is pretty similar to Silverstone in terms of smooth service and fast corners. For the fans that are watching F1 for the first time this year, Lawrence, break down the track for us. What can we expect? Well, unfortunately, it's often produced pretty dull racing. That's what Don't goes hand in hand with Paul Ricard. I'm glad you went to Lawrence for that absolute downer of a, yeah, of a point. <laughs> and, and also, because it was formerly a test track, so it was never re- in its current configuration, it was never really designed for, for racing. Uh, you've got these huge runoffs, so big areas where if a driver makes a mistake, they just get a jet, get out of jail free card. They can even cut a corner and rejoin and all this kind of stuff. So um, not only does it not always produce good racing, although there was an exception to that last year where we had a very exciting race. So let's hope for more of that. Um, you, you're also going to have these drivers talking about track limits. It's going to be a big issue throughout uh, the weekend monitoring those track limits because the FIA have got really harsh on that. And we saw that in Austria. Any driver whose four wheels go across the white line that defines the track will have their lap deleted in qualifying or if they do it 
three times in the race. They get a warning fourth time. Uh, they get a, a, a potential penalty. So that's going to be a big, big talking point. And that's unfortunate because really we just want to see these guys race, right? I mean, I know it should be as simple as a ball crossing a line in football and all the rest of it. But when you're trying to monitor a whole track and the FIA are mainly doing this with cameras rather than sensors in the track, that's only at certain points and certain circuits, it gets very, very uh, difficult tomorrow. So I hope that doesn't overshadow what could be a good race. Because also, I think, again, to go back to that heat that I'm still kind of dealing with here in the UK, but it's going to be even worse in France, that could create some great racing. Because if it starts to open up the tyres, if it starts to mean that certain teams can't go for the conventional one-stop strategy and they have to go two-stop, then all of a sudden you get a few variables thrown in and variables are what make good racing. So that's the hope that we, we get a good race and we don't get too much moaning about track limits. I think this one is so unique because, and Nate, you were telling us prior that there is 167 different configurations at this circuit. Is that true? So they can change it any way possible that they want up to 167 different ways. Yeah. So if anyone sees aerial shots of this circuit, it's, it's I mean, it, it's either mind blowing or it's amazing to look at, depending on what your perspective of it is. There's just, there's just roads going everywhere. I mean, you know, the drivers, one of the jokes when we first went there, I remember drivers actually being asked, like, how do you know which track you're on? And they're like, well, we know eventually. But like, even for breaking points, there's points when they're driving, there's a chicane kind of halfway around the circuit. And around that, there are so many different roads that, and, and again, when you're in the cockpit, I guess you can't quite, you don't quite have that perspective. But even for breaking points and stuff like that, I always wonder like why it doesn't catch one of them out at least once. Um, one of our colleagues, Ben Hunt, had a theory during COVID um, that, F1 should just camp at the port, at the circuit poor card and just do as many different configurations of this circuit as they could try with all of those different options. Fortunately, they didn't have to do that in the end. They actually managed to get a pretty good season out of, out of it in the end. But when things were really bleak in that first lockdown, that was one thing he suggested. And yeah, it would have, it maybe would have worked. Like Lawrence said, might not have been the most appealing season if you'd had 20 races at different versions of the poor card circuit. I will say this, if, if we've learned anything from this season, some of the, duller tabbed races or circuits have actually presented a lot of drama just because of some of the strategy that we've seen, the predictability. Um, so I am hopeful that this is going to be a dramatic race, Lawrence. I don't know if you're hopeful of that, but I, I'm not going to say that it's going to be dull. I'm hoping no, for something there are reasons for hope as well. And I think one of the reasons why circuits, which traditionally haven't been that exciting, but are good this year, are the regulations that F1 brought in this year. Let's not forget, among all this talk about porpoising, bouncing, all the rest of it, that these regulations were brought in so that the cars could race alongside each other uh, more easily. And so a track like Paul Ricard, where traditionally the cars kind of get a bit gapped out from each other, we might be able to see them follow a little bit closer through some of those high-speed corners, and that could create some good racing. So, no, there is, there is reason for optimism. There is reason for optimism, but just set your expectations at the correct level going in. And then you can only be surprised and enthralled by a brilliant race should it pan out. But um, yeah, they're not they're not all as good as uh, Silverstone a few weeks ago, unfortunately. Is Lawrence the type of guy who is always a downer, Nate? <laughs> I think he's realistic rather than <laughs> maybe. I think that that's probably the best way. Lawrence is really good at calling when a race is going to be great, though. So when he says that you know things might open up, I'm always like, okay, cool, that sounds good. His, his track record for those predictions is pretty good. So um, that's my glimmer of hope that I'm taking out of that that kind of review or that preview of the race. And, and I'm only I, I, joking, Lawrence, because I, no. I don't know if you guys saw this thread on Twitter. There is a trend 
in regards to George Russell, it's George Russell is the type of guy who, and then everybody and their brother has come up with a response of what kind of guy George Russell is. He has now found this trend. Somebody has alerted him to it. But for example, George Russell is the type of guy to ask the waiter, what's the damage before they <laughs> hand him the check, which yes. seems pretty on par. Yeah, I, one, one of my favorite ones is George Russell is the type of guy to slap his thighs and say, right, before getting up to leave the house. I mean, it's just like, I think it's because George has this slightly old man kind of element to him. It's a bit harsh, probably. But you know what I mean? He's so mature, like beyond his years of mid-20s, that you sometimes look at him, you're like, come on, George, you know, you should just be, I don't know, more chilled out about things. But we talked about this in the episode when we went through each of the driver's traits and his personalities. And it's actually a really good trait because it means that he focuses so much on so many little details. And that's why he's got to where he is today, which is driving for Mercedes and Formula One. Uh, but it is funny. like Some of those are just so spot on and you can just imagine him doing it. Well worth checking out the, the Twitter thread if you can. I like when... Is the type of, oh, sorry, George Russell is the type of guy to say, I'm just going to squeeze right by you when trying to get through a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one I was about to read as well. And then someone, someone said to him, he's the sort of guy that would say, how's the weather up there to a taller person to which he replied. That's actually what people say to me a lot. So I, I like that he's embraced it and he's seen the funny side of it as well. Yeah. He, he's definitely mature. That's a good way. That's a positive spin on it. Uh, old soul for sure. All right, let's get your all's predictions. Uh, I want two predictions, race winner and most surprising driver. All right, Lawrence, would you like to start? Okay, so I'm going to try and uh, shed this reputation of being a bit of a downer, <laughs> boring races, all the rest of it. I was just kidding. And, 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 and also to, um, to uh, kind of uh, cover myself with George Russell in case he's offended by what I just said about him. I'm going to say George Russell wins the race in France, takes his first ever Formula oh, wow. victory. Uh, again, because like we're thinking, you know, Mercedes could be there a little bit closer like I said, if something goes slightly wrong for Max and Charles at the front, then, uh, yeah, George, George Russell to win. Um, maybe Carlos Sainz second to keep it mixed up and Sergio Perez third. That would be a nice nice mix-up for the championship. And then, obviously, we need Charles to continue to get some points out of Max if we're going to have this go down to the wire. So, Charles somewhere ahead of Max as well. That well, wasn't really a prediction, actually. That was more of just hopeful, wishful thinking, maybe, of an exciting race, having said that it's going to be dull. But I'm going to put out that as my prediction, nonetheless. Well, I like I like that because I've been I've been wondering do I go head or heart here, and I was going to say the 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 heart one would be a Mercedes, you know, Lewis or George winning, uh, but I think Max is going to win. I'm sorry to I, I I'm following up. <laughs> I'm actually being the downer on that situation and saying that Max Verstappen will win, but I just yeah, when things go according to plan for him this year, he usually wins. And you know, as great as Silverstone and 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 then Austria Ferrari winning two races has been, I think that if you take away some of the external circumstances, Max is just pretty unstoppable this year i'll go hard a mercedes with the win i think the uh, most surprising driver is going to be pierre gasly i think he's going to do mm -hmm. really well in his home race all right now who do you think will have the most surprising performance this week lawrence uh well if george russell winning isn't surprising enough which i think would be a pretty big surprise but looking further down the grid here i think we're good um i'm gonna go with sebastian vettel just because i feel like aston martin you know, they've lost their way a bit mid-season, but they shouldn't have. The car has been evolving. It should have been making steps forward. So something hasn't quite clicked there. So I'm going to go with Seb to get it right in France. Nate? I'm going to go back to what we were talking about earlier on in the podcast. I'm about Daniel Ricciardo. I'm going to say he beats Lando this weekend. The reason oh. I say that 
is because he we all know he's been struggling with the car. We've seen him quite a lot in his career. Ricardo can be quite he's you know he's he's quite an emotional guy and he can sometimes let those emotions get get the better of him in the car, but sometimes they make him a much better driver. Monza last year was a great example of that. You know, mentally he was really struggling with where he was at in terms of his performances. And I think he's just had that fire lit under him. And that's always a really healthy Ricardo to see come into races. So hopefully this is the start of, you know, a resurgence for him, as I was saying. So yeah, I'll back, I'll back Ricardo. All right, that's going to do it for our French Grand Prix preview here on Unlapped. Catch the race on ESPN at 9 a.m. Eastern. And we'll be back next week to recap all the action. Go over whose predictions were very, very wrong. And most importantly, to be with you guys hanging out, talking about Formula One. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us comments and questions that we can bring to future shows and subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. Until then, Katie George, Nate Saunders, Lawrence Edmondson, safe trip to France, guys. Uh, enjoy, and we can't wait to read all about your uh, experiences there. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.